Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jan, we're in Melbourne. We're talking footy. <laughs> but believe it or not, we're on Published or Not, a show about books. So how do these things coincide? Nick Richardson has written about sport and the role of football during the Great War in the game of their lives. So, Nick, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. You've drawn a correlation between football and the war or people doing their duty. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you. Look, I suppose there are, there are a few things that occurred to me when I started researching this which I thought needed to be revealed and I suppose tackling head on that view that um, Australians of the day, Australian men of the day, were considered great physical specimens. Yeah, it, it comes out all the way through, even from the notion back as far as 1907 where you've got compulsory compulsory military training. It's hard to say at this time of the morning. Um, they had to give up something. This is George Foster Pierce who's looking at this notion mm. of uh, making training uh, compulsory. They had to give up something in the national interest and if that was sport, particularly football, so be it. So we were seen as sportsmen way back then. Well, we were. And the interesting thing about football, of course, at that stage was that it was still very much, in terms of its formal organisation, still very young. We only had the, you know, the VFL established really in 1896. So there was a, a clear recognition early days that this was a this was a pastime that people were really engaged with but is does it say something about australians australia the national psyche what does it say well look i think that's the kind of question that it, it's one that you know i explore through the, through the course of the book uh, i think it says a couple of things about us one of us one of it is that we are given our climate our open space we we're a people a group of people who enjoy the outdoors and finding ways to take part in an organized activity out outdoors the other thing about that is too that we're physically um you know pretty robust well this is what charles bean picked up on um you know they were players by nature and mm. this is in the official history mm. of of how the australians went to war etc they were always seen in those sort of physical sporting terms they were and i think if you look at the language that was used in the initial reports by um ashmead bartlett and, and a british journalist uh, re reflecting on um uh, the landings at Gallipoli, his whole language is about is about these great men, these kind of champions. But it, but even one of you've you've got um, a, a letter from uh, one of the soldiers talking about it's the best match I've ever played in something. Mm. A wounded soldier, mm. he's obviously got wounded fairly early and mm. didn't have to s stay there long. Mm. But it's couched in football terms, sporting terms. Absolutely, and uh, that's the really interesting thing is that. Uh, one of the things that really intrigued me about the whole story was how strong those fraternal football bonds were between these men. Uh, and it, it, it's kind of something that I'd actually not really appreciated and until I started to research it, that they actually related to each other along the lines of, along the, lines of the game. But there's a conflict that starts to emerge between football and doing your duty on a number of levels. One is this notion of professionalism, and the other then comes in about the notion of conscription. I mean, first, 
that professionalism, uh, professionalism was indeed a problem for the VFL. There was no doubt that by uh, war's outbreak, player payments and uh, clubs uh, touting for recruits was common. Mm. So you've got sport drawing people away from uh, joining up. And it became quite a, a vocal and quite um, uh, really confronting campaign that was run by a number of people to try and initially stop the stop players playing the game for money, and also as a consequence, stop spectators, uh, you know, encouraging those players by turning up to the matches and, and watching them. Well, there's an absolutely fascinating quote from Adamson, who was the headmaster of Wesley. Does a game or competition offer any inducement to men to abstain from enlisting? If so, then it should cease during the war, as that uh, all the, that patriotic Germans need to do is to subscribe to the funds of our professional football clubs and so support our paid gladiators to perform in the league or association circus instead of uh, gaining the colours. Why not iron crosses for the premiers instead of medals? My goodness. Well, it's kind of incendiary stuff, isn't it, really? And I mean, I think this is what we kind of quite often forget, that, that football became, in a sense, a bit of a pawn in the whole conscription enlistment game because uh, Billy Hughes, as Prime Minister, uh, when he introduced those conscription referendum, he made it very clear that sportsmen needed to do their duty. And as the, the longer the war went and the more men who were lost at the front, initially at Gallipoli and then, of course, the terrible carnage in the Western Front, with all those, with all those men going, Australia needed, felt its obligation to the mother country to put, to put men back on the front. Well, there's a number of things there. Uh, to begin with, um, the war decimated sport, so to speak, speak. not just football, but other sporting clubs and associations that virtually went out of business. I mean, the AFL couldn't run games virtually. No, and I mean, the other thing too is, of course, that really the only sports that did survive to any great strength were the professional sports, which were, you know, at that stage, boxing, uh, football and and racing. Um, The rest, as ostensibly amateur sports, were, as you say, completely uh, denuded by men enlisting and going off to to do their national duty. Mm. At the heart of the book, in in some ways, is an exhibition match, which took place in October 1916. But you couched that uh, as they are going off into the onto the field, the way you write it is that those players had already told uh, Billy Hughes uh, in that um, when conscription was being addressed that yeah they didn't believe in it. So you've got this exhibition match, but the players saying no, we don't uh, want conscription in Australia. So there's this uh, dichotomy, there's this tension mm. between the game. And the political, in some ways. Well, it was it was one of those kind of coincidences. The the match in London coincided on the same date with the first conscription uh, vote here in Australia. Uh, but it, you know, an analysis of the way that the votes of the soldiers fell was that those who had already seen a fair bit of the stoush were not particularly supportive. Those who who didn't know what what they were about to experience were probably more supportive. So um, the thing that struck me about that match uh, more than anything was uh, there is a little video that, that exists of it. And I looked at the video and I saw the extraordinary pleasure 
that these that these blokes had at coming together to play footy again. There's, they're lining up to have their team photo taken and they're shyacking and ribbing each other and it's very modern in its sense of fun but they're clearly just so keen to be out there playing footy. Well, a liberating experience. Absolutely liberating, yeah, yeah. Now, but sport then is used in conscription, etc. There is a recruiting poster, which I would love to be able to, you know, hold up to the microphone and uh, show the listeners, but we're not going to be able to do that. Can you describe that recruiting poster for us where they've used football? Well, it, it was an extraordinary poster. It, it's it's a, uh, an image of a soldier with a bandaged head and a, and a rifle standing over a fallen mate, and in the top corner is a photo is an image of a packed MCG, and underneath is the words "Will they never come?" And it's a and it's an extraordinarily potent reminder, supposedly to those spectators and players who are still committed to sport when, as far as the government's concerned, they should, in fact, be in the enlistment queues. Well, in, in some ways, attending a sporting match was almost a form of betrayal then. Well, I, that's a, that's the implication, absolutely. Too yeah. right. Yep. And incredible sort of stuff. Mm. At the same time, I mean, sport is seen as an integral part of maintaining morale on the front line. Uh, Monash, Bow Repair, all of uh, th- those people, what were they doing at the time? Well, Monash had Monash was no great sportsman himself, but he actually believed in as a as a powerful uh, morale booster and and unifying some fairly disparate groups of men. Let's face it, he believed that sport was a wonderful way to cement those bonds. And uh, he was when he got the idea uh, was given the idea of this match. He instantly got in behind it because he realised that this was this was going to be a terrific way to distract the troops and provide them with a kind of constructive outlet for their energies um, before they went to the Western Front. So there was this very uh, powerful uh, commitment at the highest level to ensure that that sport had its place in the way that the soldiers. Um, you know, went about their business. Mm. And bow repair's <clears throat> role was be- almost, well, was beyond sport. It w- went into other fields of entertainment, orchestras, plays and such like to maintain morale. What was interesting was uh, how the war and the sort of physical imposition of what they went through impacted on these players. So bow repair was one of our greatest swimmers. Yes. But then... The recovery process after the war, the struggling to, you know, stay in there competing um, as well because it had a, a terrible effect. Some of the well, – there was trench foot but there was also – Trench mouth and there was – A fatigue that went mm. – and bow repair suffered from that at one stage. Yes, he did. And, uh, uh, and he was very – he'd initially missed out on um, a commission because he'd had appendicitis. Uh, so he was actually – uh, given what was, in a sense, a kind of a it was a non-combative role, working with the the YMCA as their recreation officer, uh, and he was a he's a he was a powerfully energetic man, committed to these to the cause of helping the troops with a range of things, and as you say, organising concert parties, but he also did boxing tournaments, and then became this uh, very um, organised. Uh, agent of, of change with with the um, with the footy match as well. But before he could actually finish all his work, 
he became ill and was an invalid at home and wanted to come back and help Monash. And, uh, but Monash basically said to him, I, th- I think that's it. But f- for a lot of these people, and, and your book is full of the characters, it's one of the, the touchstones where you, you draw a thread uh, from beginning to end, they they lose the best years of their life in many ways in, in terms of... Bow Repair was an international competitor, um, Olympic level, and yet, you know, they were never going to be match that again. No, no. And, I mean, as you say, not only was it the best years of their lives, but um, as in Bow Repair's case, as in Carl Willis's case, Carl was a tremendously gifted cricketer who probably would have, could have pay, played for Australia... Uh, but was gassed at Messine and uh, was never quite the same ever again. Uh, his family believed that the, the gassing was actually responsible for his early death yeah. some years later. Uh, I mean, he could have... The last game I think Carl played was was with Bradman in, a, in an invitational match um, when Bradman was on the ascendancy. I mean, there were there, he's just one of many whose lives were, were blighted by what occurred on mm. the Western Front. The other thing, getting back to conscription, recruitment drives at games. What mm. happened there? Well, you see, this, I think this is one of the fascinating um, aspects of the whole thing was that um, recruiting officers were sent to VFL games to drum up support. And there became this, this disputed recounting of what actually occurred. Uh, some of the uh, recruiting officers claimed, supposedly through some um, press commentary, that they had been roundly abused and not given any time to put their message out. But the contrary view expressed by the clubs and several more intrepid journalists was that, that who were at, at the ground, that that wasn't the case at all. So it was a, a real indication of how contested this whole area was. Well, it's a whole part of our history, that conscription era, two um, appeals... Uh, what were they, What's the word I'm looking for? When they... Uh, the conscription... Um, ah. Um, I'm going to say plebiscite. <laughs> in the back well, of my mind. Yeah. Uh, but they both failed. They both failed. Mm. But um, last question, because we're going to have to round this conversation up, I'm afraid... The research, it must have been phenomenal that you've gone through for all of this. Oh, <laughs> I try not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I was helped by a couple of very good things, one of which is Trove, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are kind of very familiar with, um, uh, which had kind of helped me identify a number of things. But I was also, I had one particular family who volunteered so much material, which kind of gave me a, a, a real platform for all of that. But it's um, I, look, research is great fun, uh, and I have to say that that was probably the the more painless um, part of the whole exercise. Nick, we're going to have to round the interview up. Nick Richardson, the book is called The Game of Their Lives, and it's a Pan Macmillan release. Jan, I think it sounds fascinating. Oh, and what do you do in your real life, Nick? Are you a I, researcher? I'm a working journalist. Jan. And you said Trove. What's Trove? Oh, okay. So the National Library of Australia has a service digitising newspapers and uh, that's, that's, that's what that is and it's a fantastic asset for every researcher. Thank you. Well, from the external out there physicality of sport, we're going to the internal piece with Rebecca Ryan. What does meditation mean to you? 
doesn't mean sitting cross-legged for half an hour, eyes closed, smelling incense and trying not to think. Rebecca Ryan is a meditation teacher. Well, welcome to 3CR, Rebecca. Thank you, Jane. And have I described meditation correctly? Um, that what people think it is. <laughs> I think you very well describe what people think meditation is. Um, I think meditation is actually just that any experience, that momentary stilling of the activity of your mind. So you could be cross-legged, but you don't have to be. And half an hour? No, you don't need <gasps> half an hour. If you've got it, go for it though. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> your book is called Mindfulness for Mothers. What's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? It's a very good question. They are terms that overlap and I think that's where some of the confusion comes from. So generally speaking, mindfulness is awareness of the present moment without judgment, without critiquing, paying attention to what is in the present moment. And you could do that spontaneously. Um, we often talk about a sunset or fireworks as being mindfulness moments. You're just captivated by the senses of that moment. And children are excellent um, mindfulness practitioners. That's play. That's just playing in the moment. Meditation, on the other hand, is when we deliberately take those skills of being present and apply them to a technique. And that's why people think of sitting cross-legged. That's, that's a technique. But there's many other ways to deliberately find mindfulness in your day. Okay, well, let's make it bigger and talk about that meditation bit. And so what's the benefits of practising meditation? Oh, Jan, the benefits. Where do I stop? Not where do I begin? So one of the key benefits of meditation is to help you reduce stress and anxiety in your life. And usually that's enough. People go, oh, great, I'll try it now. Mm. Um, but broadly speaking, um, because when you meditate, you activate your parasympathetic nervous system, you get all the benefits that come with that, which is relaxing your body and calming your mind, feelings of being happier, more compassionate, Empathy and contentment can increase in meditators over the long term. People can um, feel more alert and alive in the moment. Um, memory and cognition, hormone levels, immunity, blood pressure, all those things improve. And key for a lot of us is that quality and quantity of sleep can improve with a meditation practice. We're going to talk about sleep later, but we're going to be wide awake here. And I'm, I was interested in some of the research you did in your book, and it was about Buddhist monks and how stressless, uh, stress, <laughs> yeah, they, no stress, no stress. And, and then in comparison to about the most stressed people well who would they be do you think <laughs> well I'm biased but I think mothers are amongst the most stressed people and that's why um, they're the focus of my work well often meditation is about finding time does meditation have to be that 20 minutes no minutes? no it doesn't have to be that and that it, 20 minutes is great if you've got that practice I'm not talking against that but I think one of the things as a mother and as just any kind of person with a lot going on in their life if you wait until you have 20 minutes, then you may do no practice at all. You may find no techniques. But in my book, there are things from just 10 seconds and a lot of things that mothers can do in three or four minutes with their children around. And for me, that's key. If you wait to be by yourself with 20 minutes alone, oh. I don't know about you. That, would be, that was a long time coming for me when I had small children. And, and that's what you I'm thinking about. You can't even go by the, to the toilet by yourself. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You also write that meditation is both an art and an ancient science. What's scientific about meditation? Well, the, um, a lot of my meditation um, practices come from the yogic world and the, um, the 
ancient yoga um, practitioners were very scientific in their studies. They looked at the body. They have all these um, different ways of describing the body. They have ways of describing energy. And these amazing diagrams that have been passed down through yoga teachers for generations that show whereabouts in our bodies we have certain sensations. And we now know through MRIs and more scientific research that they were spot on in a lot of things. Um, and it's I could go on, but I won't. But the, one of the key things is the chakra system looking at where energy is in our body and that is not a coincidence that that aligns almost completely with the endocrine system in our bodies as well so they're onto something there well although with science you have to have a method you know a scientific method and you've given us the three techniques a process for relaxing the body a focus for the mind and a method for managing distraction so if meditation is to have a system and a structure it has to be practiced. Do you, do you need to do it in the same spot? You don't. But like any practice, the things you do regularly become easier for you. So if you have that 20-minute practice later on in your meditation life, then it might help to do that in the same spot. What I teach through my work with mothers is that we can have triggers in our day that occur in different places. And by a trigger, I mean um, maybe you feel yourself getting really tight in your chest or maybe something else more simple is that you find yourself reaching for your mobile phone when you're distracted. So these kind of triggers, you don't have to be in the same spot to go, oh, okay, this is me being anxious, this is me being distracted. And you use that awareness to start a technique, a simple one that you can do when and where you are right then when you've got that moment. You also talk about an anchor in meditation. So is that what you start with? You think, right, this is the time, then the anchor. Um, The anchor in meditation is the sensation or the object that keeps you focused. So the trigger is what starts it. So, oh, this is why I should meditate. I'm stressed or I'm at the time of my day. Like maybe you've got an end of day practice. So you brush your teeth and you go, right, here's my time. Um, The anchor can be a sense. So hearing, sight, um, taste even and smell can all be anchors. Um, The activity of the mind, which is a lot of the mindfulness techniques say that your activity of your mind is your anchor. Or it can be something like walking or quite um, well known at the moment is colouring in, drawing or some kind of creative practice could be your anchor. Any of those things can help you stay present in the moment and bring you back when you're drifting off because we do. We always drift off. Oh, I'm getting, even you drink. Oh, everyone does. Anyone who says they don't, I'd like to meet them and find that they're secret. Through this book, I don't know how many techniques you've given us, maybe 30, I think, um, differing in times from 10 seconds to 30 minutes. I think the one that a lot of people really understand is stress and inability to sleep. And I loved your uh, little one on 3am again. And it's not counting sheep that works, is it? No, it's not counting sheep. (laughs) So just explain to the listeners just how you've set that 3am again up. Yeah. So I think um, I just just on choosing the name, like I like catchy names for my meditation techniques. And I think particularly as a mother, you know that feeling of waking up at three o'clock, maybe to, to care for a child or just when your mind starts to get alert. So that's why I've called it that. So the idea is that you've been awoken um, and maybe your child is already back to sleep, but your mind is buzzing. So the idea then is that this is a technique you can do in your bed 
Um, and it's a really simple breath and mantra technique and we actually count backwards. Yeah, I know. I yeah. fascinating. <laughs> and the reason is, and I think it, it's got, got to do with the study of habits and we know that we do so many things in our life on autopilot and once you get to a certain age, counting can be one of them. So if we just count our breaths, we'll, we'll soon be distracted like with the sheep. Mm. What we do instead is we count the breaths backwards from 27 and you just put a little simple technique in. So as you inhale, you say to yourself, now I'm breathing in 27 now I'm breathing out 27 and there's a little pause because mm-hmm. after the inhale and the exhale there's a pause and you just do that backwards to one. If you do this technique in your bed you hope to fall asleep so you can keep repeating it but it also may you can do it other times in your day where you're just so wound up that you need something for the mind to focus on but you don't you, you can't sit and do a really complicated technique so it's simple and I think effective, this one. A lot of the mums like this one. Oh, I, I thought it was great. I've tried <laughs> it myself. Um, so we, we think about stillness and then we think about how many meditations in here start with vibrations. You know, you've got the shaking one where you oh, shake yeah. all your different parts of your body and then you stop shaking them and then find stillness that way. The kids love that. So that, that comes from the idea that... So when we talk about our minds being still, it's not not thinking. You don't meditate by not thinking. There is some activity, but it's not that whirring activity and the same things in our body sometimes the best way to keep the body still is to shake it up first or to have that movement which is also why in traditional yoga we teach meditation at the end of uh, like an hour asana practice and it's from all that movement and all that breathing and all that awareness finally oh there it is the stillness that seemed impossible an hour ago you can find it there but again, don't take an hour. <laughs> Just two minutes of shaking has the same same theoretical impact. And uh, I didn't realise that uh, the om <laughs> is also a vibration. Oh yeah, om is so much more a vibration than it is a word. And it's um, oh, I love I love om. <laughs> and, and look, another one that I was really I thought was very interesting to do, especially with children, was that. Uh, uh, loving kindness meditation yeah. where you actually think about the person you love, a person that's just a friend and somebody quite neutral to you, somebody that you don't actually even like very much and you bring them into your thoughts. I love that practice and that that's, comes from the, the Buddhist um, spiritual world. It's called metta when it's in, the, um, in Buddhism and I love what you've just described about it. That's exactly how it works. But the the thing that I think is important um, for mothers is that we always start with ourselves first. So any loving kindness um, practice starts with, uh, uh, may I be happy and well and safe? And I think that's a good message. And then then it gets to everybody, but you start with yourself and then work outwards rather than, oh, I hope everything's okay. And then I hope I'm okay at the end of it. We flip that around. Well, at the end of every one of these meditations, there's... What I thought was just lovely. Open your eyes and smile. Oh, it was just... You You feel good just doing it, don't you? (laughs) You do. You do. Um, So everybody does have time to meditate. That's another one of your arguments. (laughs) (laughs) That may get me some reactions. But my my tip um, to everyone, but especially mothers, is you start by doing something that you already have in your day and you do it with mindfulness. You do it more mindfully. So you're not adding time to your day. You already brush your teeth, you already drink your food, you already maybe um, brush your children's hair. You have some practice that you do every day that you could bring that mindful awareness to and get those benefits. It can help you relax, even something as simple as brushing your children's hair calmly. (laughs) And you introduce a term called habit power. Oh, yeah. 
I think I made that up, but I'm sure someone else has said it as well. So the idea here is that if we just use willpower, if we just push through everything and try harder and harder, that may not be the way to get ourselves a meditation practice. And it may not be a, a, a nice way just to live out our day. So with habit power, you use the fact that you already have habits in your day and then you use that as the basis of your meditation practice. Now, Rebecca Ryan, your book Mindfulness for Mothers, there are so many yoga books out there. So you took this to Pan Macmillan and what did they say? Uh, I I got really lucky at Pam McMillan. My my book, my little Mindfulness for Mothers book, found itself a meditation um, practitioner as its publisher and the editor is also a meditation practitioner and we just found this group of women who go, yeah, we're all mothers, we all have this practice and we'd love to share it. So it was just one of those, like it, she was thinking, it was just one of those moments of serendipity and it was like everything came together. So I... I think that's the only place it could have worked in that with that exact group of women. I think this would be a perfect present to give to anyone you knew who was pregnant. Thank you. I think with so it. too. Yeah. yeah. So I've been speaking with Rebecca Ryan on her book, book Mindfulness for Mothers, published by Pan Macmillan, and just finishing off, discover your own path and enjoy the journey. <laughs> 